This episode is sponsored by Apollo, a tool that's helping me to open doors and close deals faster. Wanted to share it with you. Apollo is a complete end-to-end sales platform, letting you email, dial, connect on social, build plays, and schedule meetings. With conversational intelligence, transcribing my calls lately, and reminding me to act on my next steps to drive deals across the finish line, it's been a lifesaver. It's no wonder Apollo is the most loved sales tool on the planet. Thousands of users rank Apollo as a top tool on G2. Start today completely free and see how Jesse and I use Apollo. Sign up in the show notes below or at thesalesplayers.com forward slash Apollo. That's thesalesplayers.com forward slash A-P-O-L-L-O to start your free trial. What's up, everyone? I've got a very exciting guest to introduce today. Coming at us live from New York is Dustin Bowden. Dustin is the head of sales at Airplane, and he's an expert at selling to technical buyers, dev personas, and arguably some of the more challenging buyer personas that I hear about. And this is a question I get a lot from my network and from listeners like yourself is, how can I improve my ability to sell to technical buyers? And we get deep into that topic during today's episode. He also goes into some great ways that you can build and leverage champions in your deals, how to ask better questions in your discovery process, and how to build more pipeline by using the network effect of your very own company, how you can do that using LinkedIn with your own connections, and tons of other great topics. Dustin is a wizard, and he's been doing this for a really long time, so I highly recommend you take notes during this episode. So with all that said, welcome Dustin to SaaS Sales Players. All right, we are live. Dustin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So uh, I know you reached out. Remind me again, maybe we take a step back. I want to hear where you come from and uh, what you're doing right now in your career just to set the stage for your background. Yeah, so a little little quick background on myself. Um, Born and raised in Massachusetts, Cape Cod more specifically, so you won't hear any Boston accent from me or anything like that. Uh, I'm a beach boy at heart for sure. And I uh, went to school in uh, DC at George Washington University. I actually had a really different uh, uh, sort of career path lined up for myself. Wanted to get into law, uh, had a lot of interest in like the legal system and things like that. Uh, Midway through college, I'd say I I realized I wouldn't really enjoy the (laughs) day-to-day of being a lawyer. I actually enjoyed the more academic side of it. Uh, instead. And I had a older friend of mine who I grew up with in my neighborhood. He was about five years older than me. He had just moved down to DC for for a tech sales job. And so that was my first real exposure to technology sales and uh, sort of got captivated by the business side of not only like tech, but also more specifically startups. So fast forward a few years and uh, I'm on sort of at my third startup right now with a company called Airplane. We are a developer platform for building internal tools. So companies, when they need to run automate, or, you know, run or automate their internal processes, whether it's like customer operations or internal engineering operations, they can use Airplane to build the internal tooling to manage those things. So uh, running sales here and um, and uh, yeah, it's my third third startup, which has been uh, a number of different like learnings 
for me uh, across different sizes we can get into, but that's yeah. a little bit about me and, and, uh, and yeah. That's awesome. And are you in a leadership role in your current, uh, you know, at an airplane? Yeah. So we're so small that I, it's, it's, it's both right. Like I technically am head of sales, but running, uh, the deal cycles for basically all of our enterprise deals, um, will scale out a team. Eventually we don't want to do that prematurely, uh, before we sort of proven out the sales process and proven out the sales, uh, flow and right. ICP and things like that. So it's a little bit of a hybrid approach right now, but you know, eventually we'll build out the team. Yeah. And I think right now we're going to see in the next call it six, 12, 18 months and beyond a lot more startups popping up because of the current market conditions. Lots of folks getting laid off from some of the bigger tech are saying, Hey, maybe I should go and raise money and start my own SaaS or my own, you know, networking company or whatever it is. Like, uh, so I think we're going to see a lot more opportunity to come in as a, you know, first, second, third, fourth sales hire in an, uh, in an organization. What is a piece of advice you'd give someone who may be getting close to starting that first role in an early company? How do you get traction right out of the gates? How do you make an impact quickly? First of all, you're absolutely right. I've had a number of friends in the last six months uh, jump into an early stage company like I did as the first sales hire. And yeah. so I've had this conversation a number of times now this year. There are a few things I'd call out. First is you have to be prepared to know that uh, you're sort of, there's no lifeline that you are your own support. You are your own sales enablement. So yeah. It's sort of inherent to any role in a early stage, you know, seed or series A level startup. Like you have to be of a go-getter mindset. You have to be self-sufficient. Um, and I think the biggest thing you can do is, aside from the things you would do in any sales role, which i.e. learn the product really well, learn the space really well, learn your customer really well, is try to identify some of the lowest hanging fruit uh, that will allow you and your company to go from, in many cases, like founder-led sales conversations that aren't truly sales conversations when you peel back the onion. And we can get into what I mean by that a little more, but yeah. try to find the lowest hanging fruit, whether it's simple sales process, things like how follow-ups happen after a discovery call, whether it's something simple around setting the agenda for a first call, uh, whether it's the actual like flow of the discovery call itself. There were a number of things when I joined Airplane that we were able to just tweak uh, little things to just make the conversations more salesy, but not over rotate on, you know, jamming Airplane down the throats of our, of our users who sign up. Uh, so I think the first immediate area for impact, I'd say is like, look at the low hanging fruit for ways you can shift those conversations or shift those processes to be a little more salesy, a little more sales driven uh, that maybe the founders were doing before when they were doing like product research, user research, and yeah. try to see what those low hanging areas of fruit are before you go deeper around like an overall uh, like shift to the sales process or, or make a ton of assumptions about, you know, ICP, things like that. Like that stuff will come with time, but I think there's some low hanging fruit that you can, tackle in that shift from founder-led sales to the first sales hire. Yeah. What would you tell someone who is jumping into one of those roles about how to best work with a founder persona? Because in most cases, 
the founders of a SaaS company or the founder of a SaaS company is not going to be someone who necessarily came from a sales background. So they may have honestly no idea how to coach towards sales tactics or towards best practices, right? What, what are some things you've done to, you know, manage that relationship in a way that's positive and productive? I think the very first thing, and I would share this and emphasize this as a point of advice for anybody who's going through the process of either interviewing or thinking about jumping to early stage as a first sales hire is really vet your founders, right? So are these folks that you work with, you're going to be working with them really closely inherently, uh, and you should be working with them really closely, but are they folks that you can work with and are, and, and on what end of the spectrum are they as it relates to hyper-technical, uh, like uh, non-customer facing, like, uncomfortable like the extreme end of that uh versus like the founder that is like the cheerleader of the company super willing and eager to get in front of customers loves selling loves conversations like where are they on that spectrum identify that and then identify like what their strengths and weaknesses are right so um at airplane i mean both of our founders are really uh good about prioritizing the customer and really good about wanting to hop on customer calls, but I would make that a, a part of your interview process when you're vetting the founders as well, is ask them how many customer calls per week are they having today? What are the nature of those conversations? Uh, how candidly I would ask them like, what parts of the job do they like the most? And if they aren't saying, talking to customers in like the top two or three, one, that might even be a red flag to whether or not you join that company. And number two, you'll know right away, you know, what type of uh uh you know perspective your founders have on having like conversations with customers sales conversations so that's number one and then number two i would say is i think there's it's important and this can be done during the interview process as well but i think it's important to align on responsibilities for who owns the customer conversations right um at the end of the day as a sales as a first sales hire there is potentially going to be some ambiguity between like who actually owns the customer conversations and customer relationships, because founders are still going to be so close to the customer they should be. Right. Uh, so I think ironing out that alignment is key as well uh, in terms of like ownership of who as simple as something is like, who's teeing up the conversation on, on a, on a call. Right. Like I don't think founders should go away in you know, user conversations or discovery calls just because there's a sales hire there, but, Who's actually running the call? Who's setting the agenda? Who's closing the next steps? Who's doing what? I think that is really key to make sure you're you're aligned uh, on who owns what. That is such good advice because, and yes, a hundred percent agree. And just you know, speaking from my own experience, because I've joined two two companies as the first sales hire, and then I've consulted a handful of other companies who didn't have a sales hire or maybe had just hired their first round. And so this is exactly what I see is you've got to keep the founder involved. I think that what you shared about just setting expectations, even from your interview with the company, being able to ask some tougher questions, that's a right that you earn for even interviewing at an early stage company. So don't be yeah. shy. Don't, don't shy away from asking tough questions to the founders because this is your career and this is uh, your livelihood for the next, you know, however many years. Right. And so you don't want to join a company that doesn't have the right, uh, nobody, you know, no startup's going to have everything figured out, but you want to make sure you get to a place that's going to work with your work style 
you want to work with founders who are going to be somewhat flexible, open-minded, and they're going to trust your expertise, but you also don't want to lose those founders. You want them to still stay involved because they're such customer evangelists. They built the solution for this customer and they're experts, right? They should be. So yeah. that's really great advice is keeping them involved, setting a lot of expectations up front, and then not shying away from some of the tougher questions around the sustainability of the business and uh, you know the, the roles involved for everybody who plays what part in these transactions. Uh, that way you're setting yourself up for, for success and uh, totally opportunities. So that's great stuff. Yeah. And to your earlier question to me, uh, like whether or not I'm in a leadership role or individual rep role, I think that's an important conversation to have if you're interviewing as the first sales hire at a, at a startup too. Right. Um, are you being, Hired and expected to be the person that transitions into that first head of sales role and goes and owns building out a team and recruiting folks to grow and scale the team? Or are you being brought in as purely a first, you know, account executive who is meant to go in the next year before they scale a, a sales team or bring in a sales manager and just close as many deals as possible? Like, what are the expectations for? you and that first sales hire coming in different, yeah. different companies, different founders are going to have different perspectives on that too. And it'll also depend obviously on what level of experience folks have with actually doing management, the ability of folks to flex into being like a player coach role initially, and then move into a leadership role. Uh, but those are all important, I think, to set expectations on in the interview process as well. Yeah. Do you ever see yourself going to a bigger company or do you think you're a, a startup pro? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. So I, uh, my first exposure to tech sales, I alluded to it earlier, yeah. uh, was through my friend who I grew up with, who was, you know, he was like older than me. So he was like well into his career when I was at college and he moved down to DC for a role. He was with uh, a, uh, EMC at the time. So like big high tech uh, type of sales. My, uh, the summer in between my junior and senior year at college, I got a sales internship at NetApp, which is ironically like EMC's biggest competitor, but also like high tech, uh, storage, uh, hardware type sales, uh, definitely not SaaS and yeah. definitely not startup sales. So that was kind of my first exposure to tech sales in the first place. Um, I don't see myself going to a larger company unless it's, I guess, one that, I started <laughs> that became larger or, uh, or I guess like airplane got acquired by a larger company and there were good reasons to stay. Uh, I think the dynamism of a startup fits my work style and, and fits like what I'm looking for out of a career. Uh, and also just what I look for out of work, like the ability to solve interesting problems quickly and also stay really close to customers. Like, I really do appreciate the fact that in sales, what we're actually doing is helping folks solve real problems that really affect their lives. Like work isn't everything, obviously, but when we are doing our job as salespeople, I, like, I truly believe that we are solving a problem in someone's life that will make their life better. And so I, I think you stay closer to start to your customers at startups. Um, not to say you can't be close to customers at larger companies too, but I think there is a, a tighter relationship that I appreciate there too. Um, so yeah, I think for all those reasons, I think that's why I've 
been in startups my whole career. Yeah. I'm really curious how I imagine, I don't imagine, I know firsthand and I'm currently not in a startup or an early startup myself, but I've been there before. And I know a lot of people that work in early startups. How do you manage the the stress and anxiety that come with being, you know, playing such a critical role in a company's growth trajectory? It's quite different than when you go work at something like NetApp or EMC, where you're one of, I don't know, hundreds or even thousands of sales reps. Yeah. You, as the first hire and having to wear two hats, right? Because you're part leader, part contributor, you're, you're a player coach, as they say, how do you manage the the pressure that comes with taking on a role like that? Yeah, there is pressure. There's mm-hmm. also pressure that salespeople can put on ourselves. So I think like, number one, manage that first and foremost, you know, don't overload yourself with pressure on top of the pressure that exists by you by virtue of you being the first sales hire uh through which you know the revenue of a of a business is largely depending on or the first sales leader that the you know revenue uh side of the business is depending on right so i think that's number one uh interestingly enough though i think this also comes back to like vetting your founders right uh inherently at a startup really of any size but especially early stage there's a there's a lot of guesswork. You don't always know what the right target should be. You don't always know what the right quotas should be. Um, there is a bit of adjustment and a bit of um, iteration that just needs to happen. And if you're especially going early stage, it's important to vet your founders and how they view the process of iterating against things like goals, against things like quotas, things like that. Um, honestly, in my experience, you're I've seen that you're way more likely to get like axed by missing a goal at a larger company than you are at a, at a, a, certainly at like an early stage startup. So I think there is a certain level of flexibility. um, But I think it comes down to like, have you vetted your founders to get a sense for how they view the iteration uh, adjusting process of goal setting and what success looks like and being very clear and upfront on those expectations and being very clear about, the fact that like you will have to adjust things multiple times per year, possibly, right? As you go month to month, quarter to quarter, when you're really early stage um, and going zero to one. So I think it all comes back to that as well. That's a really interesting insight that poses a sort of conundrum, right? It is so true that in a bigger company, sometimes the expectations are actually higher because there's such a, you know, it's, it's proven, right? It's been, maybe the company's been around for many decades. They've had people selling their solutions or products for a really long time across yep. thousands of reps, let's call it. Whereas in the startup, there is a, a mutual understanding that it's a startup and that it's not a proven repeatable process yet. The goal is to get it there, but yeah, in some ways that actually does depressurize the role because you're coming in as, a little bit of a guinea pig, but also someone who has seen things at scale that knows what scale looks like. But yeah, yep. I think it does actually, I think a lot of people have this misconception that it's safer to go to a bigger company as a seller than go into the first or second sales hire role in a, in a you know series A or series B startup when those are two very different functions. And I do, I think I, I've seen firsthand again, that it can be more pressure to be in the bigger company because of the right. Hey, we already know what success should be. And if you can't meet that, then you're out after, you know, three or six months or whatever it is. Whereas a startup, you know, they need you a lot more. They need someone in that seat doing that job. 
So there's a little bit of leverage that you have as a startup employee that says, I need to be here. They're not going to figure this out without me. And I've, as long as I'm putting up as you know the best effort I can, uh, yeah. doing as much as I can, then I'm not really at risk in the same way that I would be if I was one of 1,000 reps at a bigger company. Yeah. And I think it varies a lot by stage too, even for startups, right? So before I was at Airplane, I was at uh, Heap, um, yeah. which during the time I was there grew from 70 employees to when I left was uh, around 300 employees. And the last two years of my time at Heap, uh, over my roughly five years there, the last, last two years of my time there were much more metrics driven, much more goal focused. We were in that sort of series D, you know, scaling uh, um, for, you know, an eventual like IPO or exit type stage. And when you're in that stage, that's a very different, you're still at a startup, but that's a very different set of pressure and set of expectations uh, than what I'm at now with Airplane, where we're really going, you know, zero to one, right? So um, it also varies a lot by stage of, of the company you're at, which I think is important to be cognizant of if you're someone who's, you know, thinking about going to a startup. Yeah. So one of the topics that we wanted to cover was selling to developers and more technical professionals. You've done that a lot. It sounds like, uh, you know, throughout your career, you've focused more on technical buyers on the development side, IT side. And I think my biggest question, the one that I get from my audience is what are, you know, maybe two or three things that you've done over the course of your career that have made that process easier. And then I'll just yeah. add on to that, that it, it can be tough because you can feel like you're not the smartest person in the room as the seller. And you're certainly not the most technical. And there's sort of this halo effect that comes from that. How do you overcome that? What are some things that you've put into place that have helped you sell to someone who's much more technical than you? I think there's, it, it's funny. It's going to sound like uh, an oxymoron or it's going to sound like it's at odds with with yeah. the underlying uh, question. But I think the first thing to remember is like developers are different, but they also, you know, when it comes to being a buyer are not different, right? So they're not different in the sense that, um, you know, they still have problems to solve that if you are truly the right solution for it, um, then you should engage with them in order to solve those problems. And if you're not, you shouldn't engage with them to solve those problems. So at the core of it, your, your, your developer buyer is the same as your sales buyer is the same as your marketing buyer is the same as your C-suite buyer. They are trying to solve a problem. And do you honestly solve that problem or help address that problem or not? I think that's important to always center on as a, as a, as a, as a salesperson. Otherwise we can overcomplicate things sometimes. Um, but I do think there are important nuances to working with developers for a lot of the reasons you called out, which are, it's really important as a sales rep to be very self-aware of the level of your knowledge and expertise and where that knowledge and expertise ends to the point where you have to involve other people, right? So one of the simple hacks, that, especially at Airplane I've learned is uh, I'll never be, when I'm talking to uh, a, a, you know, a technical prospect, I'll never use words like, oh, I think you should do this or, or um, here's, what, here's what you should do. Or it's always in the context of what we hear from other people is this. Hey, what I've heard from other people is this. 
I think that's especially important to do in the context of selling to like a developer who you are not a developer. Like I am not a developer. I do not have a developer background. Um, I don't have experience with the same, like I don't have the same hands-on experience with the technologies they are using that we might integrate with or that we might have to fit in alongside. So it's important that I frame any recommendation or any thoughts that I have, uh, you know, through the lens of, I have these thoughts because I've spoken to thousands of other developers and that this is what they've shared with me. And now I'm sharing that back to you, right? I think it's important to, to frame it in that way. Um, and then I think in the buying process, there are there are some things that I think developers appreciate more than maybe a non-technical buyer. Um, but I don't think you want to over-index on those things too much. So for instance, I do think developers like to get hands-on uh, from a testing perspective. And yeah. I think there's good reasons for that, especially if you're trying to integrate into their existing infrastructure or they need to really vet your solution from a security perspective because it's touching really sensitive data. I think there's good reasons for developers to get hands-on, but I don't think you should over-index on that by giving unlimited access that isn't time-boxed over the course of a POC with a mutually agreed you know, series of steps and plan that you're working on, right? So I think you have to balance it and remember that developers are just like buyer um, and you have to follow certain sales best practices with them um, and be centered on that. But you also have to be very aware of the level of your knowledge. And I think if you, if you do that, then you have a better shot of coming across as a true consultant versus um, coming across of, you know, as not credible because you're speaking out of turn, so to speak. If you do any prospecting with LinkedIn, you have got to go get set up with Surf. That's S-U-R-F-E. It's a tool you can use to add new contacts to your CRM system directly from LinkedIn in seconds. I'm using it every single day. I add contacts, follow my deals, keep track of notes, and it ends up saving me a bunch of time on prospecting and outreach, which means I can spend more time moving my deals along. The data is always 100% accurate since I don't have to copy and paste all the fields over from each and every contact that I want to put in my CRM. Instead, Surf does that all automatically with just one click in about 60 seconds. The team over at Surf has put together a very special offer for fans of sales players. There's a link down in the show notes and you can use the promo code JWSURF5. Don't forget the E at the end of Surf. That's JWSURF5 for 5% off your first year. Don't spend another minute doing things manually. Go get set up with Surf. Yeah, just want to agree with everything you said about focusing more on observations and data to some extent, right? Data across a customer base or industry knowledge versus, hey, I suggest you do this or I think you should do this and really focus more on kind of using social credibility, you know, social proof or other forms of credibility. That's that's the word that I was taught to use when I was in a technical selling role was we've observed that clients who yeah. X, uh, or our other customers who've done X have seen, you know, Y result, right? Versus, hey, I, I think you should do this because here's what, you know, fact, this is what result you're going to get. It's not a fact. It's, you know, you have to have enough data to, to say that it's a fact. These, uh, you know, technical buyers can spot that really quickly and your whole pitch can fall over very quickly if they call you out on that. So I think that's yeah. a great point. Um, 
what I wanted to ask you, and this is something I think will help anybody, regardless of whether you sell to a marketing team or a sales team or a customer support team, tell us about your process for POCs, proofs of concept. This is something that I talked about recently in another episode, which is, you know, as you start to sell larger ticket deals in SaaS, it becomes more and more necessary to involve technical buyers, regardless of who you're selling to. Even if you have a sales marketing solution, likely you'll get to a point where you're going to have to bring in either a member of the DevOps team or an IT buyer. And what I've also observed over my career, there I go using that word observed, is that you you do have to do a POC. You've got to let them put their hands on the product in some way. But you also mentioned a really great point, which is you can't just unlock the tool and say, you know, let's just keep in touch on this and fingers crossed, this will all work out and everything will test. Right. You guys will sign a contract within a few months that it has to be managed. So tell us a little bit about your process for doing that. And maybe airplane doesn't have that quite baked out yet, but it sounds like you've done a lot of POCs over the course of your career. So I'd love to hear how you think about those. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that ties in here is just asking the hard questions, having the difficult conversations. I think a lot of the reasons why POCs are hard for a lot of reps is it inherently, when it comes to setting expectations around POCs and enforcing those expectations, especially on the enforcement side of things, it certainly results in a lot of more challenging or hard conversations. Uh, But I think there's a way to do that where you're not just saying, hey, we have to finish this POC in the next 30 days because my quarter ends by then, right? Like there is a way to do that. So it's for the customer as well. Um, so yeah, I think it it starts by zooming out to what are the goals that the customer has, right? Uh, why are they engaging with you in the first place, right? If you're not asking in that first discovery call, why they're focusing or having this conversation now, instead of three months ago or three months from now, and of all the things they could be talking about or putting mental energy towards, why are they having why are they doing that right now if you're not asking that from the very first conversation you're having with customers then it could be then it can be more challenging to back in to a poc plan because you don't know what you're working towards right uh if you hear from a customer in that first call that they have a fundamental shift in the business in six months that is driving a need for a new investment in a given technology area or whatever it is right there you have the underlying project you have the underlying, you know, by when date that you need that you can then obviously work backwards from from a, a POC planning perspective as you get into the POC. So I think it starts in discovery, figuring out why are they tackling this now and then working back timeline wise there. Um, and then I think just tactically, I don't think it revolves around uh, like a POC plan doesn't necessarily involve having this massive spreadsheet with a ton of tabs and all that. I think there are ways to keep it simple and really bake out the process into, hey, you're in a testing period right here where you're focused on validating, you know, X, Y, Z things. And it's important to get those requirements. And then, you know, if we successfully technically validate uh, airplane in this case, say during that period, it, you know, we will then have a commercial discussion. Like mm-hmm. we, we will earn the right to have a commercial discussion with you. Uh, and I think framing it that way, where from early on in your conversation with your prospects, make it clear that like, hey, we know you're going to want to test uh, our solution in some way. Like we would love you to do that. We want to make sure if we do that, 
we know the requirements that we're working towards so that we can both mutually spend the right time on it. And if that goes well, like we would have a commercial conversation, but we're not doing testing for the sake of, you know, just testing, right? Like that's not a good use of either of our time. And honestly, I think the more blunt you can put that, I think the more prospects will appreciate that, uh, especially especially if it's going to be their time that they're spending towards corralling resources on their side or doing testing themselves. So uh, I think it's important to set those expectations up front. Do you typically do an unpaid POC or do you focus more on a sort of lightweight, low cost paid POC? Yeah, un- unpaid POC. Um, okay. I mean, in SaaS, like, matters is recurring revenue yeah. so um I, i've been at companies where we've done like paid pocs for certain situations and things like that and honestly like the conversion rate is, isn't any better than yeah. you would think you would think like oh they're putting some skin in the game they must be serious about this but in in practice um as long as you are driving towards clear expectations and alignment on what is the scope of this like POC period, why are we even doing this in the first place? And what are we working backwards from? Um, And what are the core sort of black and white requirements that can only be validated through testing that we need to, you know, validate? Um, If you're doing those things, then an unpaid POC versus a paid, um, it's just less friction to do it unpaid. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. I've done both. The, the value I've seen in a paid is if you have the type of buyer where you can put in, you can basically make a, an annual contract and then the first 90 days of that contract are like the pilot period. And then after 90 days, they're, they're I don't want to say on the hook, but they're they're signing a contract with the intent to move forward longer term. Right. Being a successful POC. That's the only case I've seen at work. But I think to your point, you know, there's not, it's not a huge upside. It's certainly not going to put a bunch of commissions in your pocket. And it's probably better just to build trust with the customer early on and give them that access, give them the ability to test what they need to test and confirm that their requirements are met by the tool. That way yep. it doesn't complicate things. And as long as you're still pushing the the commercial or, you know, not pushing, but just guiding the commercial conversation, it shouldn't be a problem. You shouldn't end up at the end of a 90 day POC with nothing to show for it. Right. So, right. That's good stuff. I I think more people, especially the the larger deals that you're you're closing, need to be thinking about how to do that. And I don't want to say it's a lost art, but it's something that it seems like a lot of managers struggle to coach their reps to do. From my experience, they don't know how to structure that, and they don't know how to offer guidance around the best way to manage that process to make it successful on the back end, so that it does become a commercial conversation. Yeah, I think um, you know John Barrows um, talks about like give get. And he talks about, you know, everything, you know, things should be equal in a, in a, in a, you know, partnership in a, in a, in a deal, for instance. And, you know, when you're asked to do something for your prospect, are you getting something in return? And if you total up all the times that they put in a a request from you relative to the amount of things they've done for you, like, is it even, I think there is something to that, to like understanding like the energy flow of the relationship. Um, I actually don't think it should be equal though. Like I think you should go above and beyond for your customers. Um, especially when you're early stage, you kind of have to, because you don't have like the brand to fall back on. You don't have, you know, the sexiest customer stories, case studies to fall back on. So when you're early, early stage, I think you got to go above and beyond. So like 
it might not be an even give get uh, ratio between you and the customer. But I think the fundamentals are important to to stay even. And what's that energy like? You know, is the energy on the calls? And this is honestly, admittedly, way more subjective. Um, but the energy flow on the calls is it very like is it adversarial? Is it truly you know a partnership? Um, are they screen sharing as much as you where they're, you know, whiteboarding out what they need and you're trying to like ideate together? Uh, what's like the energy flow like? I think that's an important piece. And when the energy flow is like done in the spirit of true partnership for a problem that you already, again, back to fear discovery knows is crucial for this person personally and crucial to the business. When those two things line up, like I'll over service the hell out of a customer, even if it throws off our give get ratio right so um i think those are things to keep in mind too and obviously that's something that as folks get more experience with um that sort of art side of sales uh comes into play but uh yeah those are things i look for uh as well in our uh, in our notes to prepare for this episode you mentioned two different types of pipeline generation company-wide and connections based and yep. I think I know what you mean by those, but I want to hear your explanation on those two different pipeline generation methods, how to deploy them and what the difference is between the two. Yeah, I think uh, taking a step back, there's sort of two ways you could think about how to approach generating pipeline. One is like the traditional way where it's like, I have this list of a hundred companies. Mm -hmm. I need to, for each company, mark out who are our, you know, I, uh, ICP personas that we should be going after, who are the titles that we should be going after. Okay. I got five at each of these companies. Um, oh, what are their, you know, what, you know, how can we, how can we, you know, tailor this message to them? So it's very like start with the account and then you end up at the person. My approach to prospecting has always been reverse. It's always been what I call like people first, uh, prospecting. And what I mean by that is um, I'm very much looking for like commonalities or connections within people first that I'm going to start with uh, and then I'm then going to start with first. So it's kind of like a work smarter type of approach prospecting. So more tactically, what I mean by that is um, when it comes to connections, all I mean are like, what are the hooks or things that really connect you to that person? Uh, and it's not like, oh, this company raised funding, go, go send them a congratulations email. Uh, it's like, did they go to a college that, you know, you went to, but then like extend that out to company wide, right? Like, did they go to a college that one of your coworkers went to that, like one of your coworkers could hit them up about, right? Um, did they work at a prior company that you or one of your coworkers worked at? Um, are they listing hobbies in their Twitter that you share or that you can just tailor messaging around, right? Um, so it kind of combines the two. And what I've, what I've done at prior companies um, is to make this sort of a company-wide thing and a company-wide exercise is I think it starts with aligning with other sales leaders and other leaders in the company. At a startup, everyone's job, and I say this you know, everywhere I've worked, but especially here at Airplane where we're early stage and it's really true, everyone's job at a startup is to do is, is sales. Yeah. Like inherently startups tend to be not profitable, tend to be growth focused. Um, 
everyone's responsibility is sales. Doesn't matter if you're a backend engineer working on the infrastructure or if you're, you know, the CRO, right? So with that ethos in mind, um, how can you make the the uh, folks you have in your company uh, another tool in your toolkit from a pros prospecting perspective? So I've done things in the past where we've done like designated um, exec, uh, quote unquote, like offsites where we get, you know, our executive team in a room, we have sales ops and some of the reps identify folks in their account, in their network that are relevant prospects at their accounts that we want them to, uh, to spend like the next, you know, two to three hours of this blocked off time sending these messages to that we've set up for them. Um, so there's like an exec level PG motion you can institute. Mm -hmm. And then across the sales team, and eventually, hopefully across other, um, but especially across the sales team, you know, we've set up uh, like college sequences or college messaging for each rep to use, but not only on their accounts, but on other uh, like reps accounts, right? So if I am a rep and, uh, and, you know, the person next to me went to, I don't know, Harvard, say, um, and I find a Harvard prospect, first of all, I'm going to sort all my prospects in all my accounts uh, and filter those for who went to Harvard. I'm going to take those and I'm going to pass those off to my, uh, my colleague and say, hey, can you reach out to these people on my behalf? And you'll have messaging saying like, hey, notice you're shared, you know, notice you're a fellow Harvard alum. Uh, my colleague, Dustin, was researching in the company XYZ, blah, 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 blah. Um, so that's sort of where you operationalize it across a company. So it's both on the connections vector and then also like really making PG and, and pipeline generation a company-wide focus uh, and a team-wide focus. So those are some examples, but those can extend to tapping, you know, investor networks. Those can, those can uh, extend into uh, tapping like other large company networks from people that used to work at like Stripe or used to work at Google or whatever. Um, anywhere you have that connection, whether it's you or someone at your company, um, mine those connections and then operationalize that so that it's not just up to you to do the pipe gen, but yeah. it's up to, up to others as well. But it's important to get that leadership buy-in on that because, you know, an individual rep, it'll be hard for them to <laughs> uh, make the whole company do that. But yeah, that's that's something that from the ground up I'm thinking about for sure, uh, especially early stage. Yeah, as I say, I think it goes back to what you said earlier about joining an early stage company is you really have to start thinking about what is the lowest hanging fruit day one when you come in the door. What is your fastest path to converting a deal and getting a new customer word? Yeah. And what I found in my experience doing that it has been that the networks, the Rolodex of the founders is probably the lowest hanging fruit. And you always want to start there, assuming that that well hasn't already been fully tapped. And in a lot of cases, by the time a rep does join, the founder's already gone through all that and they'll yep. do there. But beyond that, then, okay, outside of the founders, who else in, within the company has connections to our buyers? Surely if we're all in this same category and we're joining this company because we all believe in this mission, it's about, you know, there's bound to be somebody in our networks that we know that's in our buyer persona how do we now, you know, leverage that network to go and and get in touch with that person? I think it's a really cool idea to get the buy-in from the leadership level because as you said, this is a company-wide thing. Everybody in an early company should be focused on sales and not necessarily direct selling, but just being able to leverage that network and really 
uncover who in that network or in their Rolodex might be someone who could, could be a potential customer who could be helped by. Um, yeah. So I think that's really great advice for getting that initial traction and finding those opportunities that might be low hanging fruit. It's yeah. And I think the important thing there is like, make it easy for other people. Right. So if I have a, a colleague who went to, um, you know, Duke university and I have a ton of Duke prospects, I want them to reach out to on my behalf, like make it really easy for them. Have that messaging already ready to go. Um, if they're a rep on your, on your, you know, team, like build them a sales after outreach cadence that they can just load them into. Right. Um, it's important to make it easy for them too. And same thing for the execs. Like if you're tapping an executive network uh, or you're doing like a, you're having execs, you know, block off a certain amount of time to yeah. do outreach for you and your team into folks in their network, like make that easy for them, give them the list, make it like clean in a, in a Google sheet or a spreadsheet so that they can track who they've messaged, have them have the messaging with a little piece of it that they can customize even like in the spreadsheet share how they're connected because they might not remember exactly how they're connected so if you see that they're connected because they overlapped at you know google from you know 2012 to 2014 like share that in there too make it easy for folks so that they can help um and that'll also have like a spiral effect on the ethos in the company too uh once you start seeing results and uh, operationalizing it further will make it even easier too. It's great stuff. Super helpful for anyone out there listening. Who's even if you're not the first sales hire, if you're in the first 10 or tw- uh, 20 sales hires, this is still really good advice. And it's the same principles. Of course, it, it can really, you know, move the needle when you are the first or second, but this is good advice for anybody in an early stage company. And as we talked about earlier, this is the trend. More people yeah. are start to join early companies, you're going to see a lot more new logos popping up in SaaS and less opportunities sometimes in the bigger companies and more in those early stage and trying to help them develop their process and scale their sales. Well, yeah. um, this has been a great conversation. How can my listeners get in touch with you or learn about Airplane if they happen to be interested in what you guys are offering? Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. So um, can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm not I'm not super active in the uh, sales thought leadership sense, but I am very active as it relates to all things related to airplane. <laughs> so uh, I, I consider myself uh, a big airplane cheerleader on LinkedIn. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can also, if anyone is interested in you know picking my brain on anything or or spitballing on any of the things we talked about or, or didn't talk about or just curious about what we're building at Airplane, um, can reach me at Dustin at airplane.dev. Um, but yeah, it would be down to connect with anyone who's curious about what it's like to be an early sales hire and a really early stage startup, or is just curious about what we're building. Um, hit me up. Awesome. I will put both your email and LinkedIn link in the episode notes. Dustin, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It was super fun. 